Good evening to you all. Tonight I'd like to speak about equanimity, which is both something that we cultivate on this path that we practice here, and also something that represents in a certain kind of way the culmination of the path of practice. Almost all of the major religious systems have something in them that speaks to the attainment of peace of mind, a certain kind of balance in things that isn't affected, isn't thrown off, isn't destroyed by the conditions which may arise in our lives as individuals that somehow is possible to accept all, include all, remain undisturbed by all. And in the lives of the great saints, we sometimes see this capacity developed to the highest levels where there is a kind of imperturbability that's present regardless of the circumstances. A number of weeks ago I was listening to uh, the Carmelite Virtual Choir Uh, The Carmelite uh, Catholic Religious Order is uh, well known for its great saints, including Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. And in this Carmelite virtual choir, they had renunciates from the Carmelite community from all around the world, individually singing this particular poem written by St. Teresa of Avila, which had been set to music. So you would have nuns in seclusion, say, in Singapore, and then you would have, you know, nuns in Spain, and nuns in Mauritania, and uh, each in their own way would be singing, and then this sound was assembled from all these voices. But uh, the poem uh, translated into English was... uh, Uh, Let nothing disturb you, let nothing uh, make you afraid. All things are passing, God alone remains. And it speaks to this quality of equanimity that's at the heart of many spiritual practices, including Buddhism. So it can be useful sometimes to think in terms of images when we're trying to describe particular kinds of qualities. So for equanimity, the image that comes to me is of someone who is a master surfer. Someone who um, is on a board in the middle of an ocean without thinking, without... uh, needing to plan what needs to happen, basically is completely fluid in how they move in relationship to the, the feeling of the water underneath them. So there's a kind of 
ease of response, a nonverbal, intuitive, harmonizing with circumstances as they are sensed in the immediate. And to me this image represents this quality of equanimity, this quality of what can sometimes be an effortless way of being present with things, of being so closely in touch with them, so completely connected to them, that there's an intuitive kind of way of coming into wise balance. This word equanimity in English refers to a state of connected, accepting, balanced openness or relaxed, centered presence, clear, non-resistant, allowing, spacious stability. And in the Buddhist lexicon, there's a couple of different words or phrases that are used to describe this quality. They're upekka, which means balance of mind, non-reactivity, equipoise, evenness. Equipoise is an interesting word in English. Equipoise, equal poise, equal poise with anything. Another Pali term describing this quality is tatramajat tata, which means to stand in the middle of things, to be there in the center, not out of balance, but with some kind of stability. And in talking about these particular kinds of qualities, it can be useful to say fairly on, early on in the conversation what they're not. So if we're going to say what equanimity is not, we would say it's not suppression. And suppression is basically uh, an attempt to deal with an arising state or experience by stuffing it down or uh, denying it or tightening around it. So that's usually a form of fear or aversion there in relationship to that experience. So you know you're, you're doing suppression, for instance, if um, you're having the experience of, I'm not going to react, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to react, I'm not going to react, I'm not going to react. Um, well, <laughs> maybe you are, maybe you are going to react, which is just fine too. Uh, Another thing that equanimity is not is apathy or indifference. So uh, this is where we're not really connected to what's happening. Maybe there's a kind of withdrawal from things or a kind of defeatism. Um, Maybe there's some delusion uh, there in it too. You know, I don't care. It doesn't doesn't really matter. It's, It's all good, you know. I don't mind, Uh, you know, whatever. It comes and it goes. 
you know, there are times we may be able to express some of those sentiments and uh, have them be uh, grounded and authentic, but, you know, a lot of times it's not. So um, equanimity is more like whatever. It's not whatever. <laughs> right? So I don't want, it's not joisy. So to speak more to this point about indifference or apathy, Bhikkhu Bodhi makes the point that some of the early translators of Buddhist thought, Western translators of Buddhist thought, because they didn't really have context, translated this upekka or equanimity as something more like indifference or um, detached and unconcerned. And he says that's really wrong. It's not about being detached and unconcerned about things at all. And in fact, when the state of equanimity is well developed, there are many other wholesome qualities of mind that are present and are nearby. But he says that uh, upeka is evenness of mind, unshakable freedom of mind, a state of inner equipoise that can't be upset by the eight worldly winds. What it is, though, is freedom from all points of self-reference. If it's indifferent, it's only to the demands of the ego self with its craving for pleasure and position and not to the well-being of self or others. And another clarification uh, along this point reinforcing the understanding that equanimity is not about indifference or apathy comes from Shinzen Yang. And this is uh, really beautifully stated. So he says, equanimity involves non-interference with the natural flow of subjective sensation. Apathy implies indifference to the controllable outcome of objective events. Thus, although seemingly similar, equanimity and apathy are actually opposites. Equanimity frees up internal energy for responding to external situations By definition, it involves radical permission to feel and experience things as they are, and as such (coughs) is the opposite of suppression. (coughs) And then he says, as far as uh, expression of feeling is concerned, internal equanimity gives one the freedom to externally express or not, depending on what's appropriate to the situation. So in this, he's really pointing to the power of this particular state where the mind is actually very much in touch with what it's experiencing. It's not resisting what it's experiencing. Yet it's not thrown off by what it's experienced. It's balanced and then it actually has the fullest possible range of choices when it chooses or needs to act.
So then the next question comes in understanding this particular quality is equanimity in relationship to what? And the short answer is everything that arises and passes away, meaning all conditioned things. So we can see why this is of value if we reflect a little bit on what life is actually like. So the first noble truth, the the Buddha talks about the truth of dukkha, uh, old age, sickness, and death, the uh, way things uh, arise which are unpleasant and disagreeable to us, the way things arise which are pleasant and dear to us but which have the nature of passing away, the fact of the instability of all conditioned things and how none of them are really capable of providing lasting satisfaction, nor is the arising of things on a moment-to-moment level really under our control. We get a potpourri of experiences, not just the ones that we want. We can uh, certainly have some influence in wise relationship to what we know. We can plant many wholesome seeds that will later ripen in our hearts and minds and in our lives when conditions are there to support their opening and development. But we're, we're not running it, really. We have the delusion we're running it often, but when we look closer or when we come upon certain life circumstances where we have the experience of loss or things being stripped away or things happening against our will, we come, become aware of the fact that it's all happening without our permission and without our direction. So then what? How do we deal? So we've said earlier that things arise because of causes and conditions, not just our influence or input. So there can be many, many different kinds of waves that are present in our life to go back to our image of the surfer. Many unexpected waves, new waves, old waves, familiar waves, novel waves, tidal waves, sucker waves, good surfing waves, waves that never really crest. So to use our surfing image, the waves will come as they will. And our happiness and well-being comes in learning how to surf them, not in trying to manage them. So we start to realize when we watch how things really are that if we struggle against what's painful or unpleasant, we suffer from aversion to what we're experiencing. If we struggle to hold on to what's pleasant, then we suffer from 
craving. But if we're free from the struggle of aversion when we're experiencing something that's painful or or, uh, unpleasant, we don't necessarily need to suffer. We're present with the experience. We know it for what it is. It has its life. It has its expression. It passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind. And this is equanimity. Likewise, if we're free from the struggle to hold on to what's pleasant, what we like, and we're able to connect with and allow the pleasant without becoming unhappy when it passes away, then we have the experience of having things known exactly as they are, as they present themselves. They have their life, they have their expression. They pass through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind. And this is equanimity. So when we're balanced and centered and present, then we're in the state of equanimity or it's present as a mind factor. And in the state of balanced clarity, we really have the maximum power to choose, the maximum power. The maximum ability for wise and skillful action, both on our own behalf and on the behalf of others. So of course, then the question comes, well, how do you, how do, you do it? This sounds lovely. That would be great. I want to I ride the waves. It would be great to ride the waves, especially if we've had fresh experiences of being knocked down by the waves and held under and, you know, thrown around, wind up staggering out of the water with our bathing suit half torn off and, you know, sand down our drawers. It would be nice to know how to surf, to find a way to get in and out of the water without quite so much drama. So, One key to learning how to do this is something that I touched on earlier in the talk on investigation, which is the realization that a mind that's busy noticing, which is another way of saying uh, is mindful, is more in touch with things as they happen, is more in touch with reality. So if we're going to go back to our image of the surfer, how, do you, how does a person learn how to surf? By learning how to sustain non-distracted connection with the wave. Non-distraction connection with the wave is how you learn how to feel it, how to know it. So there are methods, <coughs> methods to do this, of course, and insight meditation practice is one of them. Now, some of you may remember your first contact with meditation and meditation instructions. I don't know if you had the same kind of experience that I had with this, but I'll tell you what mine was and maybe it'll resonate with you. So I can remember getting the first set of meditation instructions And the person who was given the instructions basically made sure to mention 
all the hindrances as things that you might experience when you're uh, trying to attend to your breath. So I'd say, you know, turn your awareness to, you know, feel the physical sensations of the breath. And, you know, you might notice other things that are, that are happening and then you can note them. So you could note anger, of course, or sleepiness, of course, or, you know, you might notice uh, restlessness, of course. And I thought, when hearing this, I thought, that's kind of weird. What's, what's with that stuff? I thought we were supposed to be training the mind to have some sort of experience of tranquility or bliss or light or maybe there's going to be like a lot of feelings of love or you know maybe the body will feel different or you know you hear all these stories of the (laughs) experiences people have had in the process of doing practice and I was like so why is he why are they talking you know why but it was really very skillful instruction because he was basically signaling very basically uh, normalizing right up front (laughs) the fact that how you intend to turn your attention and what you intend to experience eh, may have some challenges there there may be some other things that happen that you should notice when they're there and you should notice in a very matter-of-fact kind of inclusive thing. And the way he was saying it really kind of clued me into it's not a big deal. It's just kind of normal. You know, this is, you, you'll notice this. You can notice this. You can notice this. Very skillful. Because really what we're being asked to do in insight meditation practice in some ways is quite counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, if we want peace of mind, if we want, you know, bliss, if we want equanimity, if we want some of these other wholesome things, you think we would be instructed to manufacture them. But we aren't. Instead, we're instructed to attend to what's actually happening. You know, in the early stage, stages of practice, and at other stages in our practice, even if we've been practicing a really long time, we can have the experience of thinking that something is wrong or really screwed up or hopeless if we experience states of mind and body which are difficult, right? We can actually lose confidence in ourselves and think, oh God, I'm hopeless at this or There's, I've got no, no capacity for this or I'm doing something really wrong. I sit down and I have this judgment come up or I, you know, I sit down and I'm so restless I want to jump out of my skin. But it's not necessarily wrong at all when we experience these things. 
And in fact, this quality of equanimity is developed out of a process with connects with, not rejects, any and all experience. So we learn how to connect with all the waves of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And it's this process of continually attending in the same way to things arising and passing away, regardless of what they are, that actually ripens into equanimity. So this not picking and choosing piece of it is very important, as is the continuity of attending to whatever is present. So in insight practice, we develop equanimity by asking the mind to open to the whole field of practice objects. So if you're going to say, what are the practice objects? Well, you can probably come up with some of the lists, right? There's the four foundations of mindfulness. There's the, the six sense doors. There's the five aggregates. Basically, anything and everything that we can experience. And we're asked to open to them equally and in the same way, whether we like what we're experiencing or not. Now this very much goes against our uh, cherry-picking tendencies, right? Because there are certain things we find more interesting or more pleasant, and there's a kind of gravitational pull to go in that direction or to hold on to those things, or if they're absent, to try to manufacture them. This is a deep tendency of mind. But really, we need to attend to whatever is predominant with as much uh, interest as we would something that we find intrinsically uh, more pleasant. And we talked, uh, touched on this a little bit the other night in the talk on investigation when I was talking about that neither pleasant nor unpleasant and how for many people that's the place where they kind of go offline and disconnect with what's happening and start looking around for either trouble or something that (laughs) could be nicer to have happen. But instead, the question is always, what's happening now? How is it manifesting? always attending in the same kind of way as much as possible. Now there are other instructions, specialty instructions or practice tips that can be used under special circumstances, right? There's a different set of instructions I might give you if you're working with a particularly sticky hindrance or traumatic residue or something like that we would go to the particular uh, instructions for that. But the instructions would all be directed in the interest of one way or another, uh, restoring mindfulness if it has been lost, or using mindfulness to be able to be present in a way that's skillful. 
And sometimes the skillful thing under particular sets of circumstances could be to be a bit more oblique in the observation of that particular phenomenon or to change meditation objects. But in that case, you're doing it out of skill rather than out of aversion or out of preference. And that's the difference, right? Of course, the mind doesn't, you know, like to like to do this because it's not used to doing this, and it really doesn't like the discipline of not wandering off. So, of course, in practice, at early stages of practice, and then intermittently in practice, things can be really stormy and difficult. So then, the question is: Well, can the mind be with the storm? Can it rec- <laughs> recognize that it's having a storm? Oh, the storm, it's a storm. Storming, storming, unpleasant, unpleasant. Can it be with the hindrance, the particular kind of hindrance that's storming? Oh, this is aversion, this is aversion, this is not not liking, this is anger, this is anger. Okay, can't be with the hindrance? Well, then can it be, um, can the mind be with the rejection of the hindrance? I don't want to be with that. I don't want that. No? Well, then can it be with the sense of anger that arises when it can't be with the hindrances? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You can, you can go out, if you want to put it that way, as far as is necessary in regard to the originally arising phenomena in order to maintain or open mindful connection with experience. And, you know, learning how to do this, this is, this is really the art of practice. So the basic instruction then counsels the mind to regard and to treat everything in the same way. Know it mindfully, investigate all arising objects of mind with the understanding that skillfulness sometimes requires strategic regrouping, right? And On some occasions, it might mean backing off or redirecting. And you'll notice this isn't a strategy of repressing reactivity. There's nothing in what I've said that um, should be taken to be, if your mind gets reactive, if you experience a hindrance, then you should just try to stuff it down. No, just like in the first meditation instructions I got, which I, I shared with you, the instruction is, can you recognize what it is and treat it in a kind of matter-of-fact way as the truth of what's actually happening now? So there's a, the development of the gra- a gradual capacity to actually do this with a wider and wider range of objects. And part of this is a growth in calm and concentration. So gradually the the mind learns to be able to be awake and present more continuously regardless of what it's experiencing. So for instance, as, as the mindfulness and the concentration, the calm strengthens, you start to be able to see, for instance, the kind of the storm that I referred to earlier, you know, the big emotional storm or the big hindrance eruption. 
isn't one thing. Actually, when you look at it closely, it's composed of many different elements. So this is where investigation comes into play. So what is this thing that's actually being experienced now? Okay, there's thinking. It's unpleasant. It's got this kind of feeling tone. Oh, and then there's this emotion. And that's fear. And then this emotion of fear has these body sensations that are present here in the body and here, here it's like clenching and uh, now I notice as I attend to the clenching it kind of turns into heat and then it moves and then I notice more that my hands are clenching and then I f- there's an urge to get up and I feel a lot of energy in the body, right? We go from it being, uh, you know, Typhoon Mary to okay, there's wind, there's waves, there's the smell of the ocean, there's, you know, um, the boats bobbing on the sea, there's, right? It, It starts to break down into specifics. Specifics. Instead of one big glob of dukkha, it's a lot of smaller, perhaps more subtle, but clearly changing things that can be known either as a pattern or as a sequence of arisings and passings away. We start to see there's a lot of different experiences there within the big experience. And in seeing this, we start to realize how struggle creates suffering and the mind starts to be willing to let go of struggle because it starts to see, A, it doesn't help, it's just dukkha, and B, it's really not necessary. Given an increasing understanding that all phenomena really do self-liberate. It's going away anyway (coughs) at some point. It also starts to see the three characteristics of all conditioned things. The truth of impermanence, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, and the truth of not-self. And in seeing this, it starts to understand in a certain kind of way, everything is similar. They're all like this. The most pleasant things you can ever experience, the most unpleasant things you can ever experience, all the things in the <laughs> neither pleasant nor unpleasant category, they're all the same in that they are all manifestations of these three characteristics in action. So now it starts to say, oh, it's not self, it's arising on its own. I can't control it. So then what's the place of wise balance in relationship to this experience? And the place of wise balance is mindful investigation and non-resistance to it. That that's the best way to go. That's when you can start to learn how to surf. Close connection, 
willingness to sense exactly what it is, receptivity in that kind of way. And a growing trust and confidence in your ability to actually be able to do that. So we start to develop a preference for this kind of poised, non-resistant knowing. Because that's the way that we end suffering in our relationship with things that cannot be controlled. So at this point, the mind starts to treat things in a more or less equal fashion. It, it, it loses its um, preference for certain states. It doesn't lose it completely, but it doesn't try to operationalize it in the same kind of way. It starts to see the arising of a preference as a preference or the arising of a pleasant experience as a pleasant experience. It can be with it, it can know it fully, it can know it completely. But it understands that it will pass away and so it doesn't cling. And likewise, it may see the arising of a preference to get rid of something that's difficult or painful but it realizes that the control to do so isn't there. So then it turns to investigation instead, understanding the impermanent nature of this state, and so doesn't get bound up into the suffering of attempting to shove it out the door when it isn't gonna go. So once the mind starts to treat everything in the same kind of way, You're really seeing equanimity in action. And equanimity, of course, is one of the seven factors of awakening. It's one of the seven qualities of mind that develop and ripen and open and balance with each other when the mind is moving in the direction of liberation from suffering. And in the classic list of the seven factors of awakening, equanimity is last. So you see, it's, uh, it emerges out of learning how to attend in a consistent way with mindfulness and investigation. Then the rest starts to unfold from there. So uh, Bhante uh, Gunarantana talks about the process of developing equanimity in uh, vipassana upeka sambojanga this equanimity that's part of the seven factors of awakening and he says he talks about this process of uh, consistent continual uh, observation done in with mindfulness uh, the same kind of way of relating to things regardless of what they are and he says once you see that all the components of the body and mind in the past, present, and future are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and selfless. Something remarkable happens. Equanimity arises regarding all conditioned things. 
Your mind looks at everything with equanimity, wholesome, unwholesome, physical, verbal, mental, good, bad, or indifferent, it's all the same thing. It is beingness, it's simply reality. Your viewpoint is imperturbable. You realize all those wonderful thoughts and feelings are constantly changing on a very subtle level. And those terrible ones are constantly changing too. A very deep letting go can occur. The arising of peace that passes understanding. And this experience of equanimity, when it becomes the state of high equanimity, is the state from which classic awakening or classic enlightenment experiences happen. So this, like many of these other wholesome factors of mind, can be developed to very, very, very uh, deep levels that have great power within them. You know, there are other ways to develop equanimity in addition to insight practice. You know, it is one of the Brahma-viharas, is one of the divine abidings that can be cultivated uh, immediately or directly. So if you look at what's present there with the Brahma-viharas, the first of these is metta, of course. It's the ground of the rest of them, this foundational goodwill towards self and towards others. Then you have the uh, Brahma-vihara of compassion or karuna, which is when metta or goodwill recognizes the, the suffering of others and there arises within the being a, an empathetic resonance and a desire to help. Then there's the turning of metta towards the good fortune of others and the arising in, in the mind of happiness at the the recognized uh, good fortune of others, joy at the happiness of others. And then the last one, which is practiced, has a different feeling tone than the other three because it's really equanimity that sweeps in and brings in the perspective of wisdom. The remembrance that Yes, we wish for our happiness and well-being and that of others, that we all be free from suffering, that our, our success continue and grow. And we're not in control. Things that arise and pass away in a lawful way. And it's good to remember that. Because if we don't remember the wisdom piece... we act in a way that has attachment in the effort. So an example of this, you know, of why this, this remembering of wisdom that is part of equanimity is in a story I'll tell about my, my mother. So a number of years ago, I um, 
I'll give you the backstory of this so you can understand the context. I was assisting uh, at a retreat at Spirit Rock <coughs> out on the West Coast. And I got a phone call. My mother was having heart surgery, like suddenly. And she was 85 at the time. And I just felt within myself that the right thing to do was to go and be present with her before she went into surgery and then be there because when you have those kinds of things done, especially at that kind of age, you know, anything can happen. So I left the retreat um, and went home and she had the, the surgery and I was actually able, and it was successful, I was actually able to move in with her for a number of weeks and serve as the caretaker when she came home from the hospital. You know, manage the visits of the visiting nurses and the medication and the when to get up and all of that stuff and the going to the doctor. and all. So I was there for weeks. It was kind of 24-7. So this is all good and it had a really good outcome. But I, um, so the months go by and, you know, she recovers pretty fully and we decide we're going to have a little out-of-town trip to celebrate um, this. So we decide we're going to go up to Vermont for the day. So we go up to Vermont. And so you have to realize I've been the cook too, right? The cook, like, no, don't, no, cut the salt down. No, go, go decaf, do this and that. Go to and we go up to Vermont and she sees this dairy bar. <laughs> so she, she wants to go to the dairy bar. So the first thing that comes up in my mind is the dairy bar. No, the dairy bar, ice cream. That'd be, yeah. So we go in. So I try to guide her to the frozen yogurt, right? <laughs> oh, mom, look, they have frozen, yo- frozen yogurt. I don't want that. I want maple walnut. So well, but frozen yogurt, you know, that's, that'd be, you know, I don't want that. I want frozen, you know, I want maple walnut. Okay. So she orders three scoops. And I go, ma, ma, three scoops. I said, why don't you just get one and just see, you know, after you have the one, you know, how you feel, whether you really want to have the other two. Right? So this is all coming from my... Don't do it again. <laughs> you don't want to have to have heart surgery again. Don't do it again. Oh my God! You know, right? And at a but at a certain and and she she did you know what probably a lot of us would do at this point uh, when you're being uh, you know parented by your child and you're a fully capable adult, which is you know she kind of gives me the look. I want the maple <laughs> three scoops, right? And I realized at that point, you know, knock, knock, that, that basically my reactivity was in there and I was, you know, leaning forward out of my, I was no longer in equipoise <laughs> in relationship to this situation, right? Even though I, you could say there was clear perception that it would be better to have frozen yogurt than it would be to have three scoops of maple walnut. I mean, that's probably really true. But I wasn't, I had lost peripheral vision, right? I had lost the, the clear connection with the big picture of what was going on. 
And I just, you know, I had to let go. I saw I was causing suffering in this situation. I was upsetting my mother. I was alienating uh, her. The girls in the, <laughs> in the ice cream shop are like doing this, like, <laughs> you know, they were kind of like getting a little. And I realized, you know, the wisdom piece finally came in. Like, I am not in control of this. Right? No matter what I do, no matter uh, how good a care I take of my mother, you know, were, were I to control her diet completely, I would not keep her alive forever. So I had to just let go. Remember the equanimity piece. Remember the impermanence of things. Remember where the locus of control is in these sorts of circumstances. And it certainly wasn't in my own preference. And realistically speaking, in daily life practice, one of the ways that we actually wind up being most challenged in our equanimity is in relationship to, to other people, very often in relationship to other people that we really care about. Because it's the ones we really care about that we have the most difficult time having appropriate boundaries with. Right? So how often have we had the experience of kind of uh, losing our own sense of center and equipoise and sliding into a, a relationship situation where we're trying to save somebody or we're trying to reform somebody or we're trying to keep somebody from doing something they shouldn't be doing or we're trying to make somebody do something that they should be doing but they don't want to do. And it's always a disaster, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't work. The whole thing is not in balance. We're leaning too far forward. So the Buddha says, you know, in the same way that we can practice mindfulness in relation to internal and external circumstances, this is true in terms of the practice of equanimity as well. There's the practice of equanimity in relationship to our own known experiences as they arise and to the circumstances uh, of our lives. But it's also true in relationship to the perceived or known experiences of others. So someone may be experiencing a particular state if we can clearly recognize what their state is and uh, remain in some sort of basic balance and place of clarity, the action that comes forth from that uh, position is likely to be much more suitable, much more skillful. We'll have much greater chance of uh, being a positive contribution to the system than if we're leaning way forward or we're disconnected to the fact of our own immediate reactivity or we're being reactive off their reactivity. So this is really, really a, a powerful quality. And for those of you who are in any kind of helping uh, relationship or helping profession, it's really an essential quality of mind to be cultivated.
It's pretty amazing stuff when it's online, when it's available to us. You know, when this is strongly there, then we do have the capacity to actually be able to approach, for instance, situations of suffering and difficulty without being drawn into suffering ourselves in the way that we often are when this quality is not present. If you, Spirit Rock has this uh, great statue of Kuan Yin at the back of their meditation hall. And sometimes when I'm teaching there about equanimity, I'll suggest to students as part of helping them make the discernment about what that quality is, that they actually turn towards the Kuan Yin and just really look at it for a while. Because it's all there. So she's sitting in this posture called royal ease. So she's sitting kind of like this. And it's present, but it's kind of relaxed. Everything's being, being taken in. And you just know from looking at the statue and how it's formed that she could get up out of that chair as soon as it's needed and useful and just go deal with it. <laughs> present, relaxed, in balance, stable, alert, clear, able to help because of the strength of the equipoise which has, has been developed through practice. So I'll just leave you with that, that image along with the reminder that of course that capacity, that equipoise is an emergent development. <laughs> right? It emerges out of learning how to work with reactivity, right? We don't just jump to that. We learn how to know the waves, sense the waves, be present to the waves, respond to the waves in a way that's skillful. And that's how this uh, seed of potentiality within us grows. May this beautiful quality of mind open to its fullest manifestation in our hearts and minds for the benefit and welfare of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.